It's a great morning to get and dive into the Word of God with fellow students of the Word. Thank you guys for coming out on a chilly morning. It feels cold, even though in the middle of winter, this is going to feel like summer, you know. Everything's relative, so... Um, Today's uh, uh, sermon is called The Veil, and then subtitled The Separation is Real. Um, So we'll talk about this. Jesus, we come before you and we we surrender our our lives to you. We understand that we are sinful, and uh, Lord, that we, we must be humble before you. Lord God, you say you give your grace to the humble Uh, but you oppose the proud. And so above all and before all, Lord, we want to come before you uh, open and and humble, acknowledging that we are sinners and that we are needy of a spiritual life that we cannot produce on our own. Jesus, we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your power, your very spirit and life source in our hearts, exploding and and coming out. Um, And we, we know that you're faithful to do that. Lord, we can't earn this uh, wonderful, wonderful grace. We can't, um, we can't work to some deeper level of being a Christian. Lord, we can only believe your gospel more and more each day. Jesus, thank you for being our, our Savior, our provision, and, and, uh, and so gracious and patient with us when we fail. So Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit, we ask, we beg. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you guys heard that verse before? Of course, of course you have. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Coming to the Father is is like a relationship term. It, it's, it, it talks about drawing near. We're, that's an important concept for us today. Uh, long-distance relationships are hard. Anyone ever had a long-distance relationship? All right, well, tell, tell me about one. Nathan, tell me, what was your long-distance relationship? Wow, how'd that go? <laughs> that's cool. What about you guys? Did you guys have a long distance? Yeah, he, he just was wow. Wow. Cool. Does anyone think, do you guys think long distance relationships are easy? No. What makes them difficult? <laughs> what? Say, someone say something. What would you say? Hard to communicate. Okay. And he, Rich says he has to put work into it. Okay. You don't have to when you guys are close. All right. Okay. It's just easy is what you're saying. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> long distance, man, it, it's, it's tough to have that long distance relationship. I, you know, there's a lot of times it just fizzles out. The relationship fizzles out. People break up and, and it's, it's difficult, right? Well, how, uh, so separate question, how far away is God from you? When you think of where is God, what pops into your head? You know, okay, so next to you, (laughs) beside you, inside you, (laughs) 
You know what I'm talking about, right? In this uh, Spanish club, right? Okay, we were learning positional words last night in Spanish club. It was English club. It was awesome. Um, we teach our little kids, like, where is God and what do we say? In heaven, sometimes we say in heaven. And then they say, well, where's heaven? And we say, way up in the sky. Oh, like in the clouds where the birds fly? And we say, no, way farther than that. That's where God lives. See, from our very youngest age, we've been, we've been kind of ingrained that God is separate from man. He separates himself. He lives up in heaven. And then, so, then we ask the question, when do you feel God is close to you? When do you feel that God is close to you? When do you feel like you're close to God? What, is, what kind of answers have popped into your head over the years? When do you feel close to God? Okay, so when you're experiencing the emotion of joy. That's, that means that for you, that feels like God is close. Okay? What, Chris? When you're gardening. Okay? All right. Anyone else? Any ideas of when we feel close to God? Yeah. When you're broken. Okay, so you feel his closeness. Like the word says, he's near to the brokenhearted. And you actually feel that. The comfort. Okay. Do you guys, does that resonate with some of you? Amen. Amen. Okay, so in the brokenness. So why do we avoid brokenness so much? <laughs> okay. But isn't it worth it to have God's presence even if it hurts a little bit? You know, that's a that's, none of this is in my notes. I just that's an interesting we'll preach on this today. Um You know, everything that we've been learning as we've been going through the book of Exodus and all the different parts of the tabernacle and all the different parts all these religious practices that God has been giving to Israel, they emphasize the distance between God and man. And all that distance is caused by sin. All of it. You know, let's review like some of the things we've seen so far in the Bible going through Genesis and Exodus. We see that man was kicked out of the garden. We used to be close with God in the garden. Kicked to the curb, right? No longer allowed in the garden. And then when he finally brought his people out of Egypt and around Mount Sinai, he told them to put pillars up where people could not approach. Even animals, he said, if animals went up on the mountain where God was, they should be stoned as well. So you have separation after separation. And then as we've been learning about this tabernacle, we see there's three doors that keep people away from God's presence. There's the outer door on the outside of the, um, the gates, but, uh, the outer uh, gate, we'll call it a gate, uh, to get into the courtyard. And then there's another door to get into the holy place. And then there's a third veil that we're going to study today, which is the veil to the holy of holies. Three ways that God separates people from his presence. He kept people away. Only one tribe was allowed to camp around this tabernacle. All the other tribes had to be separated from a little bit. Only one family of that one tribe was allowed to go into the holy place and minister there in close to God's presence. 
And then only one man of the one family of the one tribe was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year to pray before God and to present the needs of the people before God. And so the result of all of these restrictions was what's called a fear of God. God is helping these people to understand the fear of God, that he is holy. He was not their buddy. God was not their buddy. There's this really funny, terrible song called Jesus is My Friend. Have you heard that? Okay. I just wanted to bring that up because it's great. But God at this point was not their buddy. He was to be respected and seen as holy. He needed these people to know the fear of the Lord, but the fear of the Lord doesn't save anybody. It's not the type of relationship that God wanted moving forward. It's not the type of relationship, because we sing that song, Jesus is my friend, and we mean it. He, he really has become our friend and our brother, and we've been invited and adopted into that type of relationship. That's what God's end goal was. But at this point in time, he had to teach his people that he was holy, and they could not just walk into his presence because they were sinful. Because even in this system of separation, we see hints of God's heart, of this new way that God was going to develop, where the, the type of fear that people were feeling uh, would be done away with this fear that was a result of their sinfulness. Now, you guys have felt that fear before, where you feel, and I have felt that fear before, unworthy to come into God's presence. You guys ever felt that? What in the world do we do with that fear? Well, the, Jesus has an answer. The gospel has an answer. And if we would just believe the gospel, we would understand that that is no longer our reality. We don't have to be afraid of that punishment of sin. But the enemy wants us to, to get confused on when to fear the Lord and when to come into his presence. The enemy wants us to be all gobbled up in our head about what we do when we sin and what to feel in those situations. So these little hints God puts in, one of them was in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6. I'll read it to you. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and shall sprinkle, the, sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So we have this veil, but God is giving hints that, hey, there's going to be this blood. And this blood has something to do with this veil and the purpose of this veil. The blood pointed to the way that this veil would be bypassed eventually. Isn't that cool? Okay, so it pointed to it. The blood was a hint. It was a foreshadow. So let's go to our text in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 through 35, and we'll see this veil described. He says, you shall make a veil of wo uh, make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. And it shall be woven in an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. 
Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil, and the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. So why would God give us a veil? We've kind of already said it's because our sin would, would separate us. But the fact that there is a veil actually teaches us a few things. Number one, that the way into God's presence was not yet revealed. It was still a secret. The people were still separated from God. This was still a long-distance relationship that would have its bumps and its ups and downs. So that's one thing we know, that that's why there's a veil. Number two, it was not made of wood or stone, but of cloth. And so this insinuates, this teaches us that the separation was only temporary until the true way could be revealed. Okay, he didn't make a wall, he just put a veil. Almost like you could peek behind if you were really brave. Number three, it kept people away from God and it hid his glory from them because the glory of God would kill a sinful man. The glory of God would kill a sinful man. So this is an act of protection. It's not that he's being mean and prideful and arrogant, saying, you can't come into my presence because I am awesome, which is true, but it's an act of love and protection, saying, I know you can't come into my presence because you would die, but I love you and I want to be close to you, so let me make a, a veil that will protect you from my glory, but still I want to be close to you. I want to be so close I could hear you breathing and hear you eating the bread right on the other side and hear your, your, uh, your prayers as, as you pray in that, in that place. I want to be close to you. So let's look back at our text at some of the details of this veil and we'll see how it teaches us um, about Jesus. So what is the veil? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it tells us what this veil was and what it represents. Look at this. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. So Jesus is the veil. The veil is Jesus. It's a picture. It's a type. It's a foreshadow of his life, his body. And, and it hung on four pillars. Remember we read in our text that it hung on those four pillars? And to me, again, that, that speaks of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four avenues, four pillars that the story of Jesus goes out into the world. The number four in Bible numerology is the number of the world. You have four uh, points on the compass, the north, south, east, and west. And so it speaks of the whole world. So Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is a sufficient thing to hang him on, to show him to the world. How about that? Well, it's kind of weird, though. Why would Jesus be a veil 
Why would Jesus be something that keeps us away from God when I thought Jesus was someone that would draw us close to God? Isn't that what we th- what Jesus like, oh yeah, Jesus is the one that, that brings us near to God. So why is he being pictured and shown to us as a veil? Well, it's true that Jesus is the one that brings us near to God, but first he had to show us how far away from God we were. That was the first thing that he did. Then he became the sacrifice that would bring us near to God, but the separation was needed first so that we could understand the closeness that's going to follow when Jesus comes, when Jesus dies on the cross, when we're able to enter that Holy of Holies with boldness like we just read in Hebrews chapter 10. When we, f- we are in this lucky, amazing, blessed state, we're the most blessed people in the whole world that we can come right into God's presence. But if we don't understand the, the separation that we came out of, then we're going to take advantage of it. We're not going to really know how lucky and how loved we are. So that's one reason why this veil separated us. And it's Jesus. So this veil hung between God's presence. Remember, God was sitting on the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And it, this veil hung, and then the people would be out here doing the ministry where the people hung out. And this veil hung between them. And so uh, you walk in, the first thing you would see would be this veil. And so this veil, what is it acting as? Well, for God, he sees the veil instead of people. The veil is Jesus. That's really cool because I am sinful. I act like a selfish, horrible person most of the time. And if God were looking at me and my sinfulness, our relationship would be severely strained because he's holy and I deserve to die. But when God sees Jesus, when he looks at me, see, he's, he's pleased. Jesus always pleases his father. And when I'm in Christ, you know, he sees me in that way. Well, the other way is true too. When I walk in, the first thing I see is this veil in this, in this holy place. And I don't get to look straight at God. I get to see Jesus. And he is representing me to God. He's representing God to me. This is the perfect relationship, uh, just like Adam was supposed to be. Remember, God was supposed to come and talk directly to Adam, and that was the relationship that he wanted. That's what it was supposed to be. But now we are separated from God, and we can't have that relationship with God because of our sin. But Jesus is called the second Adam. One side of the veil faced God, the other side faced men, and Jesus is the one who's the perfect man for God to look at, and he's the perfect representation of God for us to look at. He's amazing. Now look what else we see in, our, in the details of our text. We saw that this veil was made of all these fancy colors, these, these really beautiful colors. You would have uh, woven in their blue a thread and scarlet or red thread and purple and the the veil was made of white. Uh, did my battery die? No. Are we good? Okay. All right. So these colors 
represent different aspects of Jesus as well. Okay, so the blue speaks of heaven, and we've studied these in the past, so I'm just going to remind you of them. But the blue speaks of heaven, showing Jesus was a heavenly guy. He was from heaven. And then, and then the scarlet represents, anyone remember? Blood, right, that he would sacrifice his blood. It was a blood sacrifice that, that he was offering, his very life he was giving. The purple represented royalty, good job. And the royalty showing that he was of God's family. He, had, he didn't have to earn the right to represent God. He was a descendant of God. He just represented him. And white, speaking of purity, okay? He never sinned. And all these things is what a real man was supposed to be. Now we're seeing why we fall so short, why Adam failed. What we need, what we lack, Jesus is. He is showing us how far we are from God. Are we heavenly in all of our thoughts and actions? No. Are we off, are, does our blood even matter if we offer it? No. Are we royalty? No. And are we pure? Certainly not. So Jesus is giving all these pictures of how we're supposed to be as people, but we aren't. Well, what about the angels? He says here that they were supposed to engrave, embroider cherubim on this. So what does that have to do with? Well, here's the really cool thing. I'm excited to share this with you. Those angels have to do with this separation as well. Do you know the first time angels were, were really seen in this world? What were they doing? Anyone remember? Yeah. That's right. So we got to go back to the book of Genesis and remember when Adam and Eve sinned, when they failed to be what man was supposed to be and they rejected God and, and sinned, God had to kick them out of the garden and he placed angels there with swords of fire and they would swing in them all over the place to make sure Adam couldn't get back in. So let me, let me read that verse to you. Genesis 3:24. So he drove man out, or out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Where's the entrance to the tabernacle? On the east. This is really cool. Sin separated Adam from God. Sin separates us, right? This separation was real. It was not just a game to God. It was very real. And as much as Adam and Eve, had, Adam and Eve wanted to get back into the garden, into that relationship where they were just walking as God's children and, so, and just accepted in his presence, it was not possible. These angels were there for their protection. Not because God was mean, but because it's protecting them because they would have been consumed with fire in God's holy presence as sinful people. His holiness cannot allow the connection that they were missing, that they wanted again. And regret didn't help. Oh man, I really regret my sin. Is that good enough, God? Now, people try to do that today. Man, I feel really bad that I'm an idiot. I feel really... So I'm going to go to church and I'm going to... I'm going to do all these things to try to make it up to God. Does regret get you into God's presence? No, it doesn't. 
What about the desire to wash away the stain? Adam and Eve, I'm, they had a desire to, to be cleansed again, but desire doesn't get you into God's presence either. Man, I really want to get by these angels. I'm sorry, but they're going to chop your head off. They are not, they, desire does not cleanse us of our sin. There is no way to sneak around these angels. You're like, well, maybe you could just go north enough. No, that's not what this is about. There is no way around these angels. There is nothing we can do. There's no works that can fix what's broken for us. Nothing. No soap can clean the dirt that's on our soul. No rocket ship could carry you over these angels. There's no disguise that could trick these angels. I picture the big nose with the eyebrows and the glasses. The separation is real. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2, God says, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Our sin is a big problem. And the consequences of this separation are just as real. He won't look at you. He won't hear you. Are we getting the message? The Bible says that. Our sin is horrific. Our sin is disgusting. In his purity, he can't even look upon it like a dog returning to its vomit, is a man who returns back to his sin, right? Our sin is horrific, and the consequences of our sin is a billion times worse than we can begin to imagine. Eternity, and if we're suffering for eternity and separated from God for eternity, and what we call hell is horrific. You guys are like, this church service is really a downer. No, it's not. Trust me. But we have to show how dark it is so that when we see the light, we're going to rejoice and party and dance and sing for the love and grace God has shown us. Amen? Amen. Our God, our holy God, cannot draw near to sinners. It's, it's technically impossible. But a loving God must figure out a solution to this problem. You guys have heard the arguments out there. Well, if God was really a loving God, why would he send someone to hell? Well, that's a really complicated question because God is a loving God and he doesn't want to send them to hell, but he's a holy God and they deserve hell. And if he's a righteous judge and if he's going to stay holy, he has to send them to hell. He has to send us to hell. Unless he can figure out a way to change us from being guilty to being innocent literally changing us, giving us forgiveness and grace. A loving God figures out a solution because he can't just accept sinners. He can't just say, boys will be boys. Come on, Hitler, come on in. That He can't do that. And, and you can replace your name for Hitler because you're not that much better. We aren't. His holiness is so high that we are all like Hitler to him. We're all terrible. Our selfishness is 
is infected every part. He can't just forget their sin, and he can't just ignore our sin. His holiness demands that all sin be fully punished, or else he would cease to be good. He would cease to be right. He would cease to be holy, and that is something he cannot do. So he has to figure out a, change, a way to change us from being sinful to being holy. And that's what the gospel is the solution for. God came up with a way to make us holy like him again, to restore us back to that relationship like Adam and Eve was in the garden where they were fully accepted and beloved and, and there was no sin between them. There's no separation. God figured out that way. And the price for that change over you was blood. That's the price. And not just any blood, but the blood and the life of Jesus Christ on the cross, sacrificed and slaughtered on the cross on behalf of us. And now his solution is that he can take, he can cleanse our sins and wash them away with that blood. And then he goes further and he takes out our sinful heart and who we were before wanting rebellion all the time and wanting sin. He replaces that with the spirit of his own son, his pure and holy spirit, which we call the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 29, it says, I will not hide my face from them anymore. For I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Jesus washes away all my sin so that he can replace my spirit with his spirit so that our relationship can be face to face once again. Instead of it being always trying to earn my way into God's presence, I have it given to me by his grace. This gospel, this blood, this Jesus destroys the need for the separation, which is the veil, okay? So this is the solution. This is the only thing that matters to any human being in this world. The way back to the garden has been made. It's been paved. The angels have been removed. The veil has been removed. The veil has been torn in two on the cross. Our precious veil poured out his blood for us and was torn so that we can enter God's presence now by faith in Christ. Sacrifice was the only way to enter behind this veil into God's presence. And sacrifice is the only way that this veil is completely removed in our life. I'm going to read to you three three versions of this story from uh, from the the gospel so in the book of luke chapter 23 verse 46 this is how luke describes it it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the earth until the ninth hour and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two and when jesus had cried out with a loud voice he said father into your hands i commit my spirit having said this he breathed his last so luke remembers darkness and the veil being torn in two. Those are the two big things that Luke, when Luke thinks about the death of Jesus, those are the very first things that come to his mind. Darkness and the veil being torn in two. Now I go to Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. 
Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and rocks were split and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew remembers an earthquake and rocks splitting and zombies and the veil being torn from top to bottom. See, everyone's remembering kind of a different version, but they have one thing in common that's really important, and that's the veil was torn. Look at Mark. Mark chapter 15, verse 37. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark he has a different perspective. He remembers the reaction of this Roman officer to, and the veil being torn. We have been given these testimonies. We've been given this word. And we need to remember that the veil has been torn in two. We must remember this daily, moment by moment. There is no more veil for you and for me. This changed everything. Why? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, but now, you, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Do you see the distance? He said you were in a long-distance relationship, like we said at the beginning. It was far, even though it was just a veil, it was still far, God says. And now you have been brought near. But let me tell you what the enemy does in our brains and in our hearts and our own flesh does. Let me tell you this. We say things like, but I don't feel close to God. You ever said that? You ever felt that? Okay. What you're saying is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke lied, and the veil is still up, and because I don't feel close to God, I'm calling Matthew, Mark, and Luke liars. I'm not going to believe the gospel. Okay, what can I do for that person? Nothing. If you won't believe what Jesus did for you, I can't do anything for you. The way we enter into this relationship with God where he accepts us and, and we please him at all times. Even when we screw up, he forgives us. The only way to enter that is by faith, which is believing. And when I say I don't feel close to God, I don't care. What you feel, you have been brought near to God and he is in you if you believe in the gospel, what Jesus did for you. Well, how about if I say, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know yesterday morning and the day before that and the day before that, I messed up with this and I messed up with that and I messed And God surely, because he's holy, will not accept me today, right? Because you have a little bit of knowledge of God. You know he's holy. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that thinking? The enemy has convinced us that we've committed a sin that Jesus isn't good enough for. That Jesus' blood doesn't cover and wash away. And so the enemy is just getting you to do one thing, and that's not believe.
the gospel? Are we going to believe the gospel? Then you can never say, I don't feel close to God because the gospel says you are close to God. You can't ever say, but you don't know what I've done because the gospel does know what you've done. And Jesus paid for what you did. Whether you like it or not, and whether you believe it or not, it's true, but you're not going to experience the freedom and the love and the acceptance unless you believe by faith. What if I say, but, I, but, God doesn't want, but doesn't God want me to work my way up to a better relationship with him? Aren't I supposed to put some effort into this Christian walk? Jesus said the works were finished when he was on the cross. We enter in by faith and faith alone. That is what we add. Humility, acknowledging our need before God, being honest about our sin, and faith saying, I trust you, Lord. Change me, forgive me. His answers are always, yes, 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 yes. I will do that for you. How amazing is that God? How loving is he? God never says you have to work your way up to level two Christian or level three Christian. All you need is the same heart you had the moment you cried out and said, God, forgive me. You cried that out. It was a cry of humility saying, I need you and faith. I depend on you. And every situation for the rest of your life, if you just do that, you'll be a Christian and the best Christian ever. God, I need you, and God, I depend on you. Isn't that all that we have? That's everything. But I don't feel like I need to be near to God. I'm fine with my life. You ever felt that? Our world has a great way of deadening our senses and numbing our felt need of God. But when we get alone, and when we're feeling the, the Spirit push us, and we're feeling the conviction of our sin, what does watching a movie do? What does the world have to offer us? What does a comedian or what does, you know, anything the world has to offer, what money does that help when you feel guilty, when you know you're guilty? Nothing helps. O.J. Simpson had tons of money, but he still ended up in jail right? It doesn't, nothing the world offers can deliver us from this separation. Only God. How about when we think, but, but I think there should be some other religions and philosophies studied too. You can't just choose one and reject all the others. Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Father except through me. So yes, I'm going to reject all the others. No matter what they say, they are wrong because they are not Jesus and Jesus was God and Jesus offered his blood and they don't do anything for your sin. All they say is try harder, be enlightened, do this, do that. And men are faulty already. We can't do anything to change our guilt. We can't. And that's why nothing else works except Jesus and his cross and his blood. It's so freeing once you just believe. You enter into his life. You enter into being a child of God adopted into his family and you're always accepted. You're always welcomed even when you sin and even when you fail. He knows we're going to do that and he's going to work and discipline us through those failures. 
but by Jesus' blood, we are accepted family. Isn't that great? Okay, then we got to praise him. Okay, we got to enter into that by faith. We have communion up here where you can, you know, there's not magic, it's crackers and juice. But as you come in faith, it means so much more to your soul. It feeds your soul saying, I believe Jesus' body was broken for me. And so I'm accepted. I believe his blood was shed for me. And so I'm forgiven and I have new life, new blood pumping through my veins. But I don't feel it, but I don't care. And pastor doesn't care what I feel either. I just want to believe the gospel. And if that's where you're at and you believe, you are welcome to come take this. Or you can fake it and come up and take it and make everyone think that you believe when you really don't. And I hope that that's not where you are because the Bible says some people die in that condition where they're faking it. And I think maybe it's angels with their swords because when there's a separation, those angels guard between God and men and you cannot approach God in your sin. So how could we come into God's presence when we don't believe in the sacrifice and we're still sinful and not die? You have to die. Don't think you can just walk into God's presence on your own. We must approach by the blood of Jesus, clothed in the blood of Jesus, saying, I believe in the blood of Jesus. And then the acceptance is unlimited. You get everything you've ever needed and ever wanted by the blood of Jesus. You are accepted by God and you have that relationship. You guys with me? Then let's stand up. Let's sing to the Lord. So as we're going to spend uh, a few moments, you got time. You don't have to rush out. You don't have to rush into anything. We have time to just think about and, and meditate upon and receive God's love and God's grace. So uh, I encourage you uh, to just let this be a time where you believe in the gospel and approach his throne and enjoy the acceptance. You are beloved by God. And he accepts you where you're at right now if you accept his son. If you haven't accepted his son, it's so easy. You just say, I accept you. I believe that you sacrificed your life for me. And I'm never going to leave that. I'm never going to try to do it myself. I want to accept what you did and who you are. And then you have it. He gives it, and you can say it in your heart, you can say it out loud, you can jump up and down, you can go on your knees. Whatever you want, God will accept you. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory. We worship you. God, we want you to move in our hearts and move in our church. We want you to make us bold in in witnessing your gospel to this whole world. Lord, we ask that you use us in humility. Lord, we, we trust that you will... Uh, encourage us through the teaching of your word week after week. And Lord, we need you to, to heal our hearts and transform us because we, we so often turn to other things besides you. So please remind us again today that you have removed the separation and we can come right into your presence and get grace to help in time of need. In Jesus' name we rejoice. Amen.